In the ancient telling of the story of Noah, Noah is a righteous man chosen by God to build a giant ship, a boat referred to as an ark. He was told to fill it with his family and each animal species on earth because soon and very soon a flood was going to come, fill up to the skies, wipe out everything that ever lived, and destroy the world. We as humans have seemed to have a particular obsession with this story, as proven by recent history. Over nearly the past century, the story of Noah's Ark has been told and retold through modern interpretations of books, television shows, and movies over and over again. But one common theme seems to take place in similar forms. Noah, or the character representing Noah, is always warning everyone of the incoming destruction of water. And every time, the people who hear him reject this idea. They think he's crazy, he's gone mad, maybe even off his rocker. And so finally, the rains fall, and they realize he was telling the truth. Noah is someone whose words lived on past the persecution and ridicule. His story did as well. There are those just like Noah that live through the unexplained or unimaginable circumstances and share it only to be silenced and then forgotten as they are put down. But that doesn't mean they are lost and gone forever. They can still be told no matter how out of this world they may seem. My name is Marshall Coleman, and this is Storyfold. Half a century ago, on the night of April 22, 1966, on the barren outskirts of Route Number 2 of Yorktown, Iowa, essentially the middle of nowhere, Ronald Johnson, a shy but friendly farmer, was ending his workday. It was as normal of a night as any other. He spent the earlier part of the evening doing his routine duties and chores for the farm, taking care of the last few things to shut down until tomorrow. He was quoted as saying that on this night, he closed up shop as he always did every other night. The only difference he noticed? The clouds were a bit thicker across the dark sky as a light rain fell. He then proceeded to have dinner with his elderly mother, whom he lived with, watched some nightly television, read, and eventually went to sleep as the winds grazed over the Midwest plains outside his window. Only then, at 2.10 a.m., something roared in, shooting Ronald straight to his feet and down to his doorstep. And to his shock, surprise, and near horror, he saw something straight out of a science fiction film. About 50 feet from his house, he saw a long, skinny, cigar-shaped object that was landing in the field to the south. 
the loud roaring of the machine finally stopped once the ship rested. Then, as Johnson described, a light as red as blood glowed over the landscape, and two blue lights shined behind it on the body of the object. But it wasn't these blinding lights that stuck out to Ronald most. After he looked closely, he saw something that was different than any flying craft he'd ever heard of, read about, or watched on television, fiction, or real. The object, he noticed, didn't have wheels, nor did it sit on its body. The object had legs, around 20 of them, that held it upright. According to Ronald, they were so detailed, they even looked like they could walk. For 20 minutes, Ronald continued to sit out there as sounds like gunshots came from the ship, and an odor distinctly similar to ozone filled the farm. He waited to see if something, anything, was going to come from this strange piece of equipment, but nothing ever did. Then, tired and unsure, he went upstairs and back to sleep. Though it wasn't for long as he woke again to see if the object was still out there. But to his confusion, it was gone. He thought, perhaps, he might have hallucinated or had an interesting dream. That is, until the next morning. As the sun rose, Ronald found his livestock had shifted themselves to the far end of the land, wouldn't return for feeding, and were, as he put it, acting up considerably. He then found in the ground, 50 feet from the house, two rows of a series of circular impressions, six inches in diameter, and two and a half feet apart from each other. To the east, he discovered a set of imprints, square on one side, round on the other, that was divided into three smaller sections, as if a different object might have moved over there. According to Ronald, unless this cattle mutated with highly intelligent or artistic brains overnight, there's no way his cows could have done this. Then, what he found on the power line poles made him realize it wasn't a dream he witnessed the night before nor was it his mind playing tricks on him. It appeared that science fiction had become science reality. From the poles, there was a smearing of dirt along with distinct firm depressions in the wood, spaced out at the same intervals as if, well, as if it had been recently climbed. Johnson shared this occurrence with Deputy Sheriff Dick Hunt. Hunt sent the information he gathered to Offutt Air Force Base, but heard nothing back from official investigators. The University of Colorado asked for further information on the story, but it was never given to them. News of the story spread fast shortly after it happened, and Ronald became famous, but for reasons he didn't anticipate. He was informed by nearly everyone in town but his close family, that he was crazy. He was also told his story was completely fabricated, 
and that he had gone insane. His proof of both the marks on the ground and the power line poles were seen as something by his own doing. He was labeled the town liar. The persecution and being made into an outcast by strangers and nearly everyone he knew eventually led him to go into hiding for the next 40 years until finally he ended up dying the one way we all wish to never go. Sad, depressed, and alone. And this all came from one night when an unidentified object landed on his farm. The reason I'm so attached to this story and know so much about it is because this story hits pretty close to home for me. It's one that you could say runs in my blood since Ronald, as it turns out, was a relative of mine. And I remember growing up and my grandfather telling me this story in detail more than once. And I heard it once before as well, from someone who went to the site shortly after with my grandfather and grandmother. This person knew Ronald, her cousin, quite well. This person was my mother. She remembers quite vividly the events that took place afterwards, both in the story and to Ronald. Here's my mom, Gloria, with her account of the tale. He was my um, second cousin. He was not married. He was kind of a loner. Um, he used to be, when I remember Dad tell me when he was younger, he was very social and something happened in his life, I don't know, and he became a little bit more unsocial, but he was... Um, a very nice guy, very nice. But, he, and, was, but um, he, was, he was reserved, you said? Yeah, he was pretty reserved. I think he was just a little bit more um, of a loner. He didn't have a whole lot of friends. He was not married. And he lived with my great-aunt, Eva, who was my dad's, or my grandpa's um, sister. But he had another sister who lived in California, so he was just pretty much him and his mom. But um, he was real intelligent. I know that he was extremely intelligent. Sometimes people thought he was weird because he was so smart, but he read a lot. And um, he kept on, he read a lot and he watched TV a lot. Was always keeping up on current events and those sort of things. Though Ronald wasn't seen as a strange, off-putting person to my mom and her family. With family, he was okay. I know, um, I know, like, when he would go into, as we called it, going to town, because he lived on the farm, and they lived on the farm. I mean, he was a farmer, um, but I remember when he, sometimes he would go to town, he would have a hard time looking at people, because he was extremely, I guess, you, he just was antisocial and shy. But with family, he wasn't at all. And my mom and dad really reached out to him a lot. And, um, you know, they they were always really nice to him and helped. And of course, my dad was his cousin. But he liked to talk as long as he knew you. But he was fine with me. I mean, we could, 
you know, he would talk and laugh. And like I said, as long as you were family, he was fine. Ronald also lived very close by. Ron probably lived maybe eight miles away. We lived in Bethesda, which is a little farming community out in the middle of the country. And he lived um, closer to Essex, but in the rural part of Essex, which was another farming community. And she remembers very well, heading over shortly after the story all took place. Can you tell me what you remember from going over to Ronald's after the incident happened? I think we went over about two weeks afterward. And um, I remember when it happened that it was my dad came, or I mean, we all went to church and came home and got the phone call that on Saturday night, um, Lon had seen UFOs and that they had actually landed at his farm. And that he just stood and watched them outside. I mean, he just kind of stood outside his um, house and watched them. And I remember that he showed us where they landed, which you could still see um, the marks on the ground where they had been. You know, the driveway was smooth. And um, it had burnt. What it actually had done was burn where it landed, it had burned the ground. And before, the ground had, you know, there was grass to the side of it. Of course, there was gravel where you drove in the driveway because that's how it is on the farm. But then to the side was was grass. And um, the UFO had landed in the driveway, but it was in the grass beside it where it had landed. And that's where you could see where the marks had burned. It was a big circle. And the thing that sticks out in my mind the most was they climbed the telephone pole. And you could see the marks on the telephone pole where um, they had climbed up them. And they were long marks. I mean, like feet marks. But it was almost like, I guess, like claws that had... um, climbed all the way up the telephone pole. How, how old were you when this happened? Nine or ten. Nine or ten? That's all that I can remember is that I was nine or ten. And, um, I remember my dad talking about it. He was just amazed. And he kept saying, I wonder if this is true. Well, he wouldn't lie about something like that. And then, of course, when we went and saw it at his house, um, it was very obvious that it had happened. And um, he just kept saying the light was so bright. And then how he'd seen him in the sky, he just happened to be awake and he saw this light and he went outside to check it and um, he looked up and he saw it looked like a saucer, like a flying saucer. And it just kept coming closer and closer and closer and he thought, that isn't going to land, is it? And then it did. And it landed right... um, I just remember he had a long driveway to his house, and it landed probably halfway in the middle of the gravel driveway, and that's where the telephone poles were on each side of the driveway, and they climbed the telephone poles. Wow. <laughs> so what was the whole family's thoughts about it? If there was, like, one group thought about it, what do you think everybody's thoughts were? This is bizarre. <laughs> it was just something that you just wouldn't think 
that would happen and, um, you know, to land at, at his house. Of course, a lot of people in the community thought he was crazy because they already kind of thought, because he was a different individual and wasn't somebody that, you know, was well-known in the community or somebody that everybody really had continual contact with, he kind of had a reputation of being different. And because of that, they kind of thought he was crazy, that he had made it up. But um, a lot of people did. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people, you know, believed him. A lot of cameras and um, news out there to capture everything. But you could, it was very plain to the eye. And those marks were very much in those telephone poles. Can't deny it in any way, shape, or form. You would say with Ronald being as reserved as he was, he wouldn't want all that attention with the news and all that coming to his house and all that, right? No. No, he did not. And I don't even remember how the news found out about it. He may have called them. I don't know. Or it might have been a neighbor. He could have been talking to the neighbor because he did have a neighbor like right across the road that would help him farm sometimes or they would work on each other's equipment because Ronald was a real good mechanic and he would work on a lot of people's equipment. And I'm sure that that's part of it. He was telling those people that he saw a lot, you know, what had happened and took them out and showed them, you know, where they had, because he would work on that equipment at his house. And um, so he probably showed them then and then somebody called the news and that's how it got out. And it's possible that his opinion on what caused this incident spread around as well. What did uh, Ronald think about this? Did, what, did he think, I mean, did he think it was just military or did he think it was aliens or did he think it was something else? Or what, what did he say they thought it was? At first he thought it might have been military, which I think was everybody's first thought. But then once he saw those marks going up the telephone pole and um, he then he realized that this was not military. This was aliens from another planet is what he described it as. He definitely thought it was an extra, extraterrestrial being, beings of some kind. Eventually, news of this unbelievable incident ended up following my mom to school as others started to chime in about her cousin's story. Okay, I remember you telling me this when I was little, but didn't you have like a, a teacher or someone that you told that was an adult and they told you that you were crazy, that you were insane? Yes, I believe it's when I was in middle school because I had this science teacher who was kind of, um, kind of had a smart mouth anyway. And, um, he was always making little comments, and we talked about UFOs. I believe I was in seventh grade, and we talked about UFOs, and so then I told him about Ronald, and he thought I was absolutely nuts. But, um, you know, and I told him, I said, hey, I'll take you over there. I'll even show you the mark. But, of course, that was you know, that didn't happen. But, um, yeah, he thought I was crazy. He thought I was making it up. A lot of people thought Ronald was making it up. This same mindset from others around town ended up taking a toll on Ronald and appeared to tear him down piece 
by Peace. I think there was a lot of ridicule, which really hurt him from all of this, and he just turned basically into a hermit. Do you think he was ever, like, hoping that he might get answers one day from this? I'm sure he did. I have no doubt about that, that he thought that he would, but I think he was so made fun of and so ridiculed that it was, it was hard. It was this persecution and becoming a laughingstock that made him go downhill so fast. I wonder how these people who share these instances should be treated. And I asked the question to my mom. How do you think we as people should treat others who have stories that just seem way too out of this world or unexplainable or unimaginable? Well, I think we need to listen to them because a lot of it is true, but to ridicule someone so badly and make fun of them and say things that they say in the newspaper or in the media or um, even to their face or, or behind their back, it can affect them terribly. And I definitely believe to this day that just made him become depressed, ashamed, and all the more where he would not even want to talk to people. I know he came to the point of where he never cut his hair the house just got really bad, and um, I remember working at the pharmacy, as a behind the pharmacy when I was going to college, and he would come in and get his prescriptions and get my aunt's prescriptions, and he looked just really bad, and um, it was sad that how all that ridicule had affected him. Stories like Ronald's, as complex and odd as they may seem, most often end in sadness because of holes, questions that may never be answered, and maybe above all, fear. Fear from others who are afraid to hear experiences like these and told Ronald to shut up. Perhaps Ronald saw something different in the cloudy night than he thought. Perhaps he saw a CIA spy drone testing its flight and landing patterns. Perhaps he witnessed a testing of a new ship from the nearby Offutt Air Force Base on his farm of a craft that could not only fly and land, but could possibly walk or climb. Or maybe he did indeed experience something out of this world and out of our understanding. Regardless, it's a story that's gone untold, buried in persecution and ridicule for half a century. But it's one that shouldn't be drowned in silence. It's a story that's worth sharing. May yours never go untold. Storyfold was produced by me, Marshall Coleman. Music was produced by Chris Zabriskie with Land on the Golden Gate and I Need to Start Writing This Down. 
Everyone has a story to share. I'm a firm believer in that. Hence why I have this show. And I believe you are one of those people. If you have a story worth telling that you'd love to be on this show, I'd love to feature it. It doesn't matter if it's joyful, gloomy, terrifying, or hilarious, or even a mix of all of these. I'd love to share it here. Just go over to marshallcoleman.net slash contact, follow the instructions listed, and you're good to go. Please, please don't hesitate. The story you have is one that others might be looking for. Can't wait to hear from you.